Welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. I'm Fiona Sutherland, body inclusive non diet dietitian and yoga teacher from Melbourne, Australia, and director of the Mindful Dietitian. Please join me as I have important conversations with dietitians and health professionals from all over the world about getting brave and leaning into tough conversations as we cultivate a strong community of practitioners committed to body inclusive practice. We'll talk about mindfulness, we'll dig into diet culture, and we'll explore ways of bringing courageous and important topics into our professional spaces so we can more deeply understand our own experience and make our work more meaningful. Thank you for joining me. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to this next episode of the Mindful Dietitian podcast. It was my enormous pleasure a little while ago to speak with Evelyn Triboli, both for this podcast and also, amazingly, in person. It will come as no surprise to you at all that Evelyn and I, along with some other friends as well in California, enjoyed a a, a beautiful sunny afternoon sharing some beers um, on the California coastline. So that is the absolute best way that you can get to know Evelyn Triboli. There is no doubt about that. But aside from that, you can get to know her so well through her intuitive eating platforms, um, her website, intuitiveeating.com, and on Instagram, where she is simply Evelyn Triboli. So those of you who will know about Evelyn know her best probably as the author of Intuitive Eating, which is a mind-body self-care eating process comprising 10 principles. Uh, Did you know that the Intuitive Eating book has given rise to over 90 studies today to date showing the benefit of intuitive eating. Evelyn is a very very gifted public speaker and she uh, gives her best work I think in the training and education of health professionals specifically about how to help our clients cultivate a healthy relationship with food mind and body through the process of intuitive eating. For many years, Evelyn was actually the nutrition expert for Good Morning America and a national spokesperson for the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. It will come as no surprise to you that Evelyn is sought after very highly by the media. And did you know that she also qualified for the Olympic trials in the first ever women's marathon in 1984? So although Evelyn no longer competes, she is reportedly a wicked ping pong player and an avid hiker. And I have witnessed this. We speak about it in the podcast. Evelyn loves to dance. Just give her a tune and she'll be up on the floor dancing and getting everybody up with her. She's just got such contagious energy. It's amazing. Her favorite food is chocolate, which comes as absolutely no surprise. And most importantly, really one of the most important things to understand about Evelyn is that she's currently a meditation student of Dan Brown, PhD, from Harvard Medical School. So not only does Evelyn speak a lot about intuitive eating and the process of mindfulness and meditation, but then also walks her talk, which is something that I really have so much respect for when we can dig into our own experiences around meditation and mindfulness and understand more about the foundations on which they are laid in more of the ancient wisdom traditions, then we can bring such a lot more insight into the work that we do, particularly its intersections with the way we experience our body 
body and food and eating relationships. So in this particular interview, Evelyn and I really dig into, oh my goodness, so many things, including the addressing the very common misconceptions about intuitive eating. And we talk quite a lot about spending time on what's effective and how we kind of define that for ourselves. Um, we talk about supporting each other in the collective work that we're aiming to bring into the world and Evelyn's really funny experiences on Instagram. Evelyn is one of these amazing people who can bring together a lot of the theories and ideas um, and put them into practice in a way that really makes sense. And I really love the portion of our conversation where we talk about what's called the Simmelweis or Semmelweis reflex, which is really um, how we tend to reject new information which doesn't match up with the information or beliefs or, you know, what we're holding that we already have. It's really interesting, you know, as dietitians, we can get our plate, get ourselves kind of locked into a place of cognitive dissonance where we, uh, where we can't go back and we feel like we can't move forward and we kind of end up feeling a little bit stuck. So we talk quite a lot about this during this uh, podcast interview. Uh, we also dig into the importance of supervision and what we can get from um, this particular process. It was, when we recorded it, it was very, very top of mind for me and it will come as no surprise to you that I'm still a massive fan of supervision. So for more from myself and The Mindful Dietitian, you can go to our website, which is www.themindfuldietitian.com. .au. And I say our website as if there's more than one of me. There is only one of me. But The Mindful Dietitian is not only the name of my business, it's also the name of a community. And I hope that you are a member of our community. It's, uh, it's one that's really set up and designed for health professionals to support us in our client-centered, um, body-inclusive work and all the, all the things we want to bring to the world to make it a more equitable place for everybody in everybody. So really, look forward to perhaps seeing you at a training or education event or maybe a conference. Um, what you'll see on the Mindful Dietitian website is there's a calendar there of events that are appropriate for uh, health professionals, which um, coincide with uh, health at every size principles, which align with non-diet approaches or, or mindfulness. And um, a lot of these I've had kind of personal experiences with and, and really thoroughly recommend taking a look at. Otherwise, we have a Facebook group which is unsurprisingly called The Mindful Dietitian, a place where uh, dietitians and other health professionals who are interested in uh, body-inclusive, client-centred and health-at-every-size approaches, we can all come together in community and have some really interesting conversations. So I look forward to seeing you there or somewhere else, either online or in person uh, soon. And I really hope you enjoy this interview with Evelyn Trivoli. Hey, Evelyn, and welcome to the Mindful Dietitian podcast. What an absolute pleasure it is to chat with you. Oh, so likewise, you have no idea. I know, this has been a, quite a while coming. You and I crossed paths quite a number of years ago now when I did your intuitive eating coaching training, and since that date have been shouting it from the rooftops to anybody oh, that will listen. It's absolutely amazing. It has really laid a, a strong foundation for how we understand, you know, high-quality high quality training so super oh, grateful you so to much. you thank you thank you now i wondered if we started from the present moment and maybe worked back a little because i've noticed something a little different evelyn and that is that you have gathered quite a presence on instagram and <laughs> 
<laughs> and I'm curious to know, like, what's your, your what's your experience been of that? Because I remember, oh my God. you know, yeah. you know, not so long ago when you joined, I was like, well, welcome, welcome to Instagram world. And it feels like you've kind of rejuvenated things. Like it's, it's been amazing. Well, that's, that's lovely to hear because that's actually how I feel. You know, it, it has energized me. I look forward to the post. I look, it's so, in, you know what it is? So, okay, I'll answer your question. The broad picture and then the, the details on the Instagram thing. So I have had people on my case saying, you got to get on Instagram. You got to get on Instagram. I'm like, rap, 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 rap. No, that's a Kardashian thing. I'm not into that. Rap, rap, rap. So then I have a friend. <laughs> I do, I do impressions sometimes. I, sometimes I act out cells in the bodies, but another story for my patients. But anyway, I have a friend who was a, kind of a founder of AOL, long story short. And she's a yoga teacher, by the way. You'd like to know that. She goes, you have really got to get on. People are, people, people are using some of your stuff. You should go. So I find out, okay, I go. And I go and oh my gosh, what it's like, you know, this work has felt so isolating and to be in when with the tribe of my colleagues and then to be in a tribe of people who have read the book and who are just, I'm getting, I, I'll tell you what, it makes me want to cry for two, many, many reasons. I get these most amazing DMs about you have changed my life. Really, you have changed my life. And as some of you may or may not know, I did a spontaneous thing with somebody I met on Instagram, Tiffany Rowe, who also has a podcast. She reached out to me. And I said, sure, I'll do it. And it was so funny because the first one, we did an awesome uh, podcast and the sound didn't take. <laughs> oh, no. She was, she was so bummed out and, and later contacted me. Would I consider doing it again? Absolutely. So my long story short is we had a connection. And she ended up launching this self-love dance party. And I don't know if you know this about me, but I love to dance. Once the music starts, I don't stop. I do know about that. And I have actually been in the presence of you um, cutting a rug. And it is quite <laughs> spectacular, might I say. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I said, I'm going to go. She couldn't believe it. And so she said, can I, can I announce it that you're going to be a special guest? I said, sure. And then she goes, will you do a little QA? Sure, that's fine. Oh my God, they sold out the place, 400 people. I had people coming up to me in tears. I, you've mm -hmm. changed my life. And what, it, what, what my response, I was just overwhelmed with, I don't know, this deep gratitude. I can't tell you. It's one thing to know your work has touched people, but just to see mm -hmm. the sincerity. There was a pair of introverts that introduced themselves to me. They hate dancing, but they came because I just wanted to say thank you. Do you know? Mm -hmm. That was... Um, and, and so my, my message back to anyone who says this to me is thank you. It's very gratifying. And we, Elise and I may, may have given you the map on the highway out of hell, but you did the work. Don't ever forget you did the hard work. You had the courage to make those steps. So in short, Fiona, my uh, presence on Instagram has surprised me. <laughs> it's just, uh, it's blown me away. I, I thoroughly enjoy it. What I didn't realize as compared to other social media, and it's funny, I used to be on the social media committee for the um, Academy for Eating Disorders, but not on Instagram. And I'm used to trolls and all the nasty stuff that can go on on the internet. But with Instagram, you really have a lot more control over your feed and it's a safe space. So I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really, really enjoying myself and it feels like I'm on a mission to 
And yeah. my kind of people have said it straight because there's also, we have a lot of work to do. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions about intuitive eating. It's why I, I added another hashtag intuitive eating official because mm. I'm sorry, counting macros and intuitive eating is not intuitive eating. Counting macros on the weekdays and then the weekend doing quote intuitive eating, that's just the absence of counting macros. That's not intuitive eating. Mm -hmm. So getting on to spread the good word and, and making a decision that, you know, I want to spend my time in, in positivity and helping people on the, on this path. I'm not going to spend my time in negative energy, engaging, engaging, engaging. Cause I also have had people contact me. Oh my gosh, they're saying this, they're saying that. I finally decided what, how do I want to spend my time? So it's mm -hmm. more about putting the, the good stuff out there. That's, that's, that's my long answer to your short question. <laughs> no, that's actually a brilliant answer. And my, I guess my next question to you is, so for those of us, so for those of us that have really learned so much from you and for who, you know, you're, you're such a leader in our, um, in, in our space, um, how can we support that as well? So, you know, kind of, passing mm. along the the thanks by by staying really true to the principles that you and Elise outlined in your book and that you continue to speak about so considerately and so consistently which is really important how can we as a dietetic community support you to to keep things rolling along. Oh, I love that question. And let, let me start by saying thank you because you did a post on Instagram a couple of weeks ago that I thought, yes, this is what we need. And you posted something to the effect that intuitive eating is a specialty. There are nuances there. And mm -hmm. I thought that's the message. In fact, you don't even know this, but it's kind of lit a, a fire under me that, as you know, we certify and train health professionals how to do this, that we need to do more lifting up of that. And we're in the midst of doing probably a very major uh, overhaul to help support the people that have done this kind of work. So that's, that's one thing. The other thing is for the dietitians out there who've kind of heard about intuitive eating, I'm not sure what it is. Do your, do your homework, read the research, read the book. Um, one of my biggest frustrations is when someone makes a criticism and, I'm, and believe me, I can take criticism. I'm fine mm -hmm. with that, mm -hmm. but don't criticize without reading the work and knowing what the basis of it is that, that I get really frustrated with. But in terms of, 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 of continuing to answer that question. The other thing you can do, sometimes this happens when something gets popular because intuitive eating has now gotten popular in, oh my gosh, social, not just social media, but media media. I just did an interview with a Hollywood reporter today. I'm thinking, oh my God, I hope it comes out okay. <laughs> How they're going to interpret it. Right. Yeah. And so sometimes what happens is people are posting about the principles of intuitive eating, but they're not citing the original source, which was, which was us. And I understand it's been out there, but I think it's important to understand sourcing. I've had some people contact me and say, oh, I thought I, I invented that myself. And then I saw there's a book on this. It's like, ah. <laughs> um, nope. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so maybe maybe the other thing in terms of, of, of helping raise each other, other others up is, is also knowing how to define it, you know, and I have to take my hat off tip of the hat to Fiona Willer, because she came up with the best definition of the distinct, distinct distinction between mindful eating and uh, intuitive eating. I don't know if you're on that Facebook group where this came up and I wrote this really long thing and someone else really, really long thing. And I thought they were all very good. And then Fiona comes in and goes, well, I kind of view uh, my Mindful eating as a skill set and intuitive eating as a self-care eating framework. I go, oh, that is so well said and so succinct because we have to raise each other up and all this stuff. It's very compatible, very kumbaya, all that kind of stuff. But I think what's important to know, there is a basis in science on this. You know, there's 90 studies to date supporting the work. And the thing I'm really big time on, if you haven't had a chance to see, well, this is going to get aired at a later date, but I'm doing a series of posts 
on interceptive awareness because this is such, and, and I just did a talk on this at uh, IADEP two, two weeks ago at the National Eating Disorder Conference in the United States. And interceptive awareness, I like to say, is our superpower. And it's our ability to perceive physical sensations that arise from within the body. So it includes obvious things like hunger and fullness, like no kidding. It includes having a full bladder, feeling your heart race. But the thing that blows me away about this is that it also reflects every emotion. Every emotion has a physical sensation. And so when you break down the principles of intuitive eating, they work either by amplifying that connection to the body, to the sensation of, of body, or they remove the obstacles. And the obstacles are in usually from the mind in terms of thoughts, rules, beliefs, and values. And lately what I've been finding when I talk to health professionals, I just spoke to a physician over Instagram on this who hadn't, hadn't heard of an intuitive eating and thought it was some kind of woo-woo thing. And I said, well, are you familiar with interceptive awareness? He goes, yeah, you have my attention. Boom. You know? So I think sometimes we need the language um, according to the audience in terms of who we're speaking to, you know? Mm. So I got off on a tangent there. <laughs> No, 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 that's perfect. And I mean, um, you probably are well aware that I'm a yoga teacher as well. And yeah. it's, um, you know, interceptive awareness is, is absolutely key to understanding how to become more curious about what's going on in the body and to not open up those avenues to, um, you know, to, to understand how our experience within the body then intersects also with our experiences in the world and how oh. to, you know, make meaning of all that stuff. And so it's a big, you know, ball, isn't it? Oh, wait, I, okay, it gets even better. So I got to tell you, this one just, I swear, I, I, I'm going to sound like a, well, when, I, when I'm about to tell you, when I first read this, I cried. I, it's very rare that I read, uh, that I cried when I read research. I will cry at a good movie, at a novel, um, or something beautiful. But what, about, what about really bad research? Do you cry? I cry then. Well, <laughs> I, I, get just mad, I get angry. Yeah, angry. Yeah. So anyways, I was doing a deep dive on interceptive awareness, really looking at the anatomy, and it all takes place, you know, in the insula, main, mainly the right one. And so there's this very well-renowned uh, neuroanatomist who's done a deep dive on this stuff. His name is um, A.D. Craig. His nickname is, is Bud. And so I'm reading this little tiny figure. I like to go into the deep, deep details. And he's talking about how, you know, interceptive awareness is processed in the, in, the, in the insula from the posterior to the anterior. And he says, that's the global emotional moment. And in that global emotional moment of now, we are connecting to our human sentient beingness. Oh man, isn't that, I just thought, bam, mic drop. That is what it is to be a human. This is the intersectionality with, I, I think that's the why when, when people say that this work's been life changing is when you connect to your body, you're, you are connecting to the, your physical sensations that represent uh, biological needs, but psychological needs as well. And it's all happening in the now. It's a direct experience in the body. We can't eat based on our past or eat based on the presence. What's going on now in your body? So I, I really view this as a sacred journey. And I think we have a lot of work to do to dismantle diet culture. And I'll tell you where the, it's funny, I just this came out in the Atlantic. It's a, it's a pretty big uh, magazine in the United States. But uh, the reporter was asking me how dietitians are taking this message. And I said, you know, the dietitian, I'm going to explain it by first telling a, a, a study. It, that part didn't make it into the story, but I'm going to tell you. Yeah, please. A study that came out on uh, 
the, the use and knowledge of intuitive eating by dietitians and what they found is that the dietitians who had been in practice for a longer period of times were the ones who used it and embodied it. And, you know, I thought this makes so much sense because when you're squeaky new, anything is kind of easy. Just, you know, slap on a little food exchange with somebody and out the door they go uh, and you don't see the repercussions. But give me, you know, five years and all of a sudden it's not feeling too good in your soul because you see this is really not not working. And so what I'm happening, what's happening right now in my trainings is I'm, I'm getting a lot of feedback from the dietitian saying, why weren't we taught this in school? Uh, one, just this model, the fact that it was created by two dietitians, like, oh my gosh, let's have pride in our profession. Absolutely. And for people in the trenches with lived experience of working with people. Um, and secondly, this gets into a big old topic, but the whole awfulness around weight stigma and the bias in research. A lot of dietitians have been taught, you know, uh, body weight is a thing for health and we know it's not. And that, that's a whole other big old topic. And I'm thinking, why haven't you, why didn't your teachers teach you to criticize research in a constructive manner and to look at all the confounders and the missing pieces of bits of details that are so, so important. But I'm excited to see dietitians coming to this. In fact, I had a dietitian out of Sweden who just finished the program. And she, she's been in practice for 20 years and she had never heard of it, came across it in a study. And she said it has blown her mind because it is such a gratifying way to work with patients. She never knew. And as we started talking about this, I like to talk about this, especially with dietitians. It's quite commonly when you're working in a um, traditional paradigm model, medical model, Food exchange. And by the way, you can do medical nutrition therapy and intuitive eating. I'm not throwing out the baby with Absolutely. the bath water. Yep, you can. Um, and I, so, but what I'm talking about is when you're doing it for the purpose of weight loss, that's the issue that we're really talking about when there's problematic issues. And so what happens, this is my interpretation. So far, you can tell me if you agree with me on this one. I believe what's happening to a lot of dietitians is they get to this place of cognitive dissonance. What they're doing does not feel good. And I actually teach that with my patients when they're in a place where their values are not aligned with their actions uh, or their, or which includes speech, we talk about that and how does that feel in the body? And it's profoundly known psychological research. It feels like crap and we're going to do anything to get out of dissonance. And so I think that's what shakes some of the dietitians loose in terms of there's got to be a better way, you know? Yeah. So it's kind of exciting. And then when that shift is finally made, I have people pay attention to what's that feel like in your body? Do you notice a shift? And one of the things I'm starting to do now in my, my supervision trainings with um, actually allied health professionals is noticing their own body changes when they're working with patient because you can feel a power, uh, a conflict of, you know, power struggle. You can feel dissonance and so on and, and it informs you, you know, and so we just keep getting deeper and deeper into this work. But eventually what ends up happening with all of this interceptive awareness, intuitive eating is ultimately you learn to trust your body again. Ultimately you come home and when you trust your body and all the nuances, you start trusting other aspects in your life. It's like cross training uh, for your decisions in business, your decisions as a mom or whatever it happens happens to be. I think that's why it feels so life-changing for a lot of folks, besides getting rid of all the anxiety and all the unnecessary suffering, you know? Yeah, m most definitely. And I think for, for many dietitians, my observation over my years of practice has been that, um, you know, be becoming more attuned and becoming more aware of, of our own role in, in people's healing and also in our own healing as well you know we can't leave ourselves out of this picture we're very much part of it and when we're oh, able to bring please. ourselves into the room and see ourselves as a very integral part of what is a very dynamic kind of um, healing and shifting process that the gifts are just 
absolutely immeasurable for us and the people that we're working with. Oh, well, you know? and that's, you're absolutely right. And that's the feedback I keep getting. And like this dietitian from Sweden, it's, it's like, it's life changing for them mm -hmm. because you're relying now in your values. It feels right. And, and I think what happens is as you feel more grounded in this approach, um, regardless of what's going on in the profession, you know the truth and you move forward and feel good in, in doing so because you see lives change and your life changes, you know? That's so true. Yeah, when we are able to view ourselves with a greater deal of compassion and see ourselves as, you know, real imperfect humans as part of this process, I think it promotes longevity in the profession. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. how many, I've got no idea of the statistics. I'm sure it's available somewhere, but I would say around the five year, maybe from graduation to five years, I would say there would be a steep drop off as, mm. as, uh, as practitioners start to, um, you know, get, get in front of like real life humans, the people who we are, <laughs> you yeah. know, trusted to her. <laughs> And also not only that, but then also the myriad of, of, of pressures from maybe colleagues or our national associations or um, other health professionals to yeah. do what they want us to do. So feeling, as you say, feeling more grounded in the work that is in not only in service, but is also ethical, is yes. based and also allows you to come into community with other people doing this as well. Absolutely. You Absolutely. Know, like yeah. you, you and I both in our early careers were like, oh, oh, am I the only one feeling like this? And you feel like you're kind of shouting into the ether. Is anybody else feeling how I'm feeling? Well, no, and no, I have to what? tell you, I mean, you know, when we came out with intuitive eating, the first edition was in 1995. That's almost 25 mm. years ago. Oh I mean, my so God, don't. Wow. We've been doing this for a really long time, and I think that's why it's so funny. Someone, um, I've, I've gotten some feedback from some folks that have read that article in, in the Atlantic, and the, the only negative feedback, and I think it's good, is like, why are they calling it a trend? <laughs> Intuitive eating right? is a trend. And I just think that's funny because obviously people know about it they even make that remark. But yeah, it's a trend that took 25 years to happen. But I think it's important to look at this in terms of a healing for our own profession. You know, Elise and I have changed a lot in our work. You know, um, one of the, the subtitles in the, in the book in the first two editions said, get to the weight you're, you're naturally supposed to be. And I technically didn't have an issue with it. But the issue is there's a problem with that statement. It makes people weight focused. And I, you know what? I'll tell you, this is where we're really lucky being going back way back then is I got to be schooled by you know the likes of Deb Brigard and Linda Bacon where they would take me aside in the corner in a hallway after a conference or during a conference and say you know you really can't say that <laughs> mm -hmm. whatever it was I would say but they would say it with the utmost of compassion I could hear hear where they were coming from and we changed so we we, we, we fought our actually we didn't even have to fight our publisher to our happy surprise uh, we Elise and I prepared to go to war to get this thing off the title and our publisher took it off really really nicely and even now we are working on the fourth edition which will come out next year and we're taking a fine-tooth comb and going through any weight stigmatizing uh, statements in there and I have to tell you we've been shocked to see oh we wrote that because some of this mm -hmm. has been from the first edition mm -hmm. so I say that because we're all going through a change and we have to evolve and we have to acknowledge like yeah uh, that doesn't fly anymore the research doesn't 
the part that that's a weight stigma kind of thing, you know? And I think what's tough for a lot of dietitians right now, because I've talked to them on the side, is with social media, is sometimes they feel hesitant to speak up because they don't want to, quote, get ganged up on, you know? And I'm a big, big advocate of a process called calling in rather than calling out. Are you familiar with that? Yeah, I love that process because it's so, it's a warm way to invite people to learn right so yeah. I'm gonna let you explain it you, you what do you what's your kind of thoughts on it well I'll tell you what it is and I'm gonna actually give you a little bit more of my my background about gosh is it about 10 years ago I became a Buddhist and that's how I I um my spiritual practice is along those lines and the reason I'm sharing that with you is because I I got to know uh the works oh my god I'm bl I'm blowing her name right now I can't believe it Re Reverend Oh, Angel Kyoto, and she oh, identifies yeah. as black, zen, and queer. And who knows, that might have changed by now. I don't mean to be flippant about that. I just don't, I want to get her identities correct. But she wrote this profound piece that, you know, we need social justice. Her, she knows, I mean, she's, she's at the intersection of many, many, many issues. She goes, but if you're, if you're calling people out and they feel shame, most of folks in our country have had some kind of trauma. And when you've got trauma and shame or just plain old shame, you can't hear, you shut down. And I thought that was such a really, really good point. And, and so she, and that's how I learned about the calling in process is you recognize, um, well, like, I actually like the way you said it even better. You get, you get curious and you invite them in to, to look at what, at what they're doing. And looking back on my career, that's what I had through, you know, Deborah Gard and Linda Bacon or Lindo Bacon was, was calling in on, on, on a personal level, you know? And so, and actually I am meeting, do you know who Carmen Cool is? <laughs> sure do. Yeah. Well, I finally, we finally were in the same room together at a, at a conference. Oh and my goodness. Wow. I know. I was I so that. excited. It was, it was, it's funny. We both knew of each other's work, but we had never met in person. And I said, you know, I really want to learn how to become a better ally. And she goes, great, let's meet. So we're meeting in, in two weeks because we're still learning the ropes on all this. And when I hear people like Deborah Gard say she's still learning. It's like, oh my gosh. And I think the reason it's important for us to have these kinds of conversations so that as folks are new into the social justice aspect of health at every size, that it's okay that you're still learning. The people who've been here for a long time are still learning too. And it's, and it's, and it's humbling, you know? Yeah, absolutely. But it needs to happen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I think that it it really and sincerely helps when folks who have been doing this work for a long time and are definitely viewed as leaders um, within this space are still are still saying, "I'm still learning. I, I'm still yeah. learning. I mess up, you know." And I know that people have also got my back to help me to do better. You yeah, know, that's the yeah, best I thing about our community. It is. And I think especially when you're in a leadership position, there's responsibility there. I agree. You know? And so one of my great hopes because of the split that seems to be going on in our profession right now uh, is, is to have some kind of healing. And maybe I'm naive, but I see intuitive eating as being a bridge for that because it was a model created by, by one of us. And so hopefully, Elise and I will be speaking at the next fancy convention, uh, conference, but we haven't heard yet. I put in a, a proposal to, to speak. But anyway, I, I just invite dietitians to get curious about this. There's a ton of good research on it. And I, I think at the bottom line is it feels good in your soul to work with folks this way. And maybe the biggest question I get from dietitians is like, you know, a lot of intuitive eating sounds good, but I, I, 
I can't get behind the make peace with food. How in the world can you say it's okay to eat French fries? How about eating ice cream for breakfast? I can't get behind that. And then that's when we have a really good conversation that when we look at health, we have to look at the big picture. We have to look at emotional health, psychological health. And of course, there's a difference between eating a green a broccoli stock versus a green jelly bean. You know, mm-hmm. we, We're not saying it's the same, but there's that paradox of permission and we don't have it, that forbidden fruit oh my gosh, it escalates the excitement. And if you think you're never, ever going to have it again, you get into the last supper eating. And what do you think is going to happen if that kind of eating continues to happen with, with time versus just enjoying it or discovering, I you know what, I'd like to really see some research on this because it's a phenomenon I see, and you can tell me how often you see this too. And, and folks are making peace with food, but they're legalizing food. They can have whatever, you know, the foods that have been on their, you know, war list, if you will. The amount of times folks discover, uh, I don't like it. Uh, or or it's not that they hate it but they've you know what I think it is they have removed the guilt they have the permission there's no urgency there's no angst and now they just get to be with the food Mm -hmm. and taste it for the first time and sometimes discover what worry and and it's and it's hard to believe and i would say i see that in 25 to 30 percent of my patients you know with some aspect of food do you do you see that yourself yeah most definitely i think there should be some research on this i don't know of any papers that have documented this phenomenon do you yeah no i don't i'm not aware of any and no you you're absolutely spot on and i think it's um you know when when um and we know so much now um, thanks to neuroscience about how yeah. our brain gets itself into loops of, um, of um, you know, almost perceived pleasure as opposed to embodied pleasure. And, yeah. you know, kind of the, we tell ourselves that this is what we want as opposed to feeling from within that this exactly. is what helps me feel good or this is satiating or this is pleasurable or, you know, whatever, whatever feeling good means to us. Yeah, I never stop being uh, profoundly mesmerized by that particular experience. Now, I don't want to ever set someone up to have that expectation because sometimes you'll discover, oh my God, I love that chocolate mousse. And then all the more reason to pay homage to it and 100% attention and all that Mm. stuff. But it's just an interesting phenomenon I see over and over again. Yeah. So you raised make peace with food as one of the principles, which sometimes people find maybe a a, a tripping point or, you know, I don't know what a better phrase is. Um, is there another one of the principles that you notice in particular um, dietitians kind of are like, ooh, ooh, I'm not either I'm not sure about it or I or I or there are some tripping points within it? Yeah. Um You know what it is? It's not that it trips them up, but it has to do with scope of practice. And I'll tell you what, I get excited when any health professional questions, is this within my scope of practice? If at least someone's questioning that, I'm not going to worry about you. (laughs) I worry about the person that doesn't question it. So when we look at the areas of, of, uh, coping with your feelings without food, we're getting into emotional eating, you know? And so some dietitians wonder, is it okay to be, to be practicing with that? And so it all depends on what level that you're working on that with. And if there's a therapist involved and the irony is when there's a therapist involved, which usually there is, if I'm working with someone with a binge eating disorder, I feel pretty comfortable doing deeper dives because I'm in communication with that psychologist. They know what I'm doing. Um, and that, that part feels really good. So I think that increases my, my, my comfort level. And yet I know full well that in some cases, if there wasn't a psychologist involved, I would not be processing it. You know, so it really mm-hmm. depends. I've had some dietitians. this, this has surprised me, this is newer, uh, who are surprised 
are wondering if it's okay to talk about self-care. We talk a lot about that in the workbook, not in the book book. And Elise and I have joked, if there was 11 principles, that would have been one of them. <laughs> and, you know, and the way I look at it, this is kind of a basic thing like, like brushing your teeth. And if someone's having a lot of challenges and obstacles because of issues around worthiness or shame, then yeah, then that might merit, you know, getting a, a psychologist involved or something. But I certainly think these are things we're fully equipped to handle. But what I do say is if you are uncomfortable in that area, then don't <laughs> because mm -hmm. your patient's going to pick up on that anxiety, even though it's not spoken. And they're going to feel like there's something wrong, perhaps, with what, what they're doing. This is where maybe you get supervision or you get more comfortable on this or just know who, who is your community? Who are, your, who are you going to refer your patient to if they need a therapist, if they need a doctor, if they need um, a, a personal trainer, exercise physiologist, who are you going to refer? that's like-minded and it's 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 a beautiful synergy when that when that happens you know yeah absolutely and I love what you were talking about with um, scope of practice and what's just wanted to connect that with what we were talking about earlier in terms of interoceptive awareness yeah. and how we can tell within our own bodies how we can tell within ourselves yeah. when we're kind of where we're kind of reaching the edge you know, yeah. and wh how, c what are the sensations that arise in my body when I can tell this is, this is my edge? And then how can I honor that and stay present with not only that sensation, but also my client as I prioritize their and my safety yeah. and their well being and my well being as well and do what's um, oh, I don't want to get into the binary and say do what's right, but more do what's most considerate, I guess. Well, and I think what it does, it informs the process. Can I, can I share a case with you on this? Oh, please. I will, yes, oh, definitely. I will never forget this. And, it's, and I, will, I will acknowledge from the beginning, this is an unusual situation. Okay, I wouldn't or normally do this on a first session, but this patient, this client happened to be a therapist. So that's important detail. And I see so many therapists, that's not you know, identifying anyone by making that statement. This is somebody who had a history of an eating disorder. That's very common too. And she was being triggered and wanted to come in and see me to kind of make sure she was on the right path. And when she, and this is someone I've never worked with before. And as we're, as I'm taking uh, her history and so on, she is very clear. She needs a food plan. And I understand that when you've had an eating disorder, it's part of the treatment. You know, you need, um, the way I look at an eating disorder is like a broken arm or broken leg. You need a cast to support the healing. You need the structure, but it's not the goal for your rest of your life. And I thought, well, it's understandable. She's really hold, holding on to that, but let's see. So I, I wasn't as, as, as clear that she needed to be on a, some kind of rigid food plan, but she was, and I didn't want to fight her on this. I thought, okay. So, and let me also back up. Before I start every session, this is actually something I take pride in. I ground myself. I'm very, I actually have a little routine I go through before I open up the door to the waiting room. When I put my hand on it, I, I stay present. I let everything go. I open the door slightly. And as I open the door, I make eye contact, contact and usually smile at, at my patient. And that's my routine that this is a new session. Let everything go. Mm. So I start off in, in a um, neutral place. That's always my, my uh, intention that I aspire to. So long story short, I was in this neutral place with this patient. And as we start doing some planning together, my edge was loud and clear. My body was screaming at me. I was feeling inside edgy, restless, 
uh, um, they were anxious sensations. And I know I didn't enter this session with anxiety. And so because she was a very skilled therapist, I said to her, I said, you know, I want to give you some feedback and see if this might relate to you. I, um, right now, I'm suddenly feeling really, really edgy and kind of anxious. And I'm wondering if it's possible I, I might be picking up on something you're experiencing right now. And as soon as I barely finished that sentence, she broke into tears. She goes, oh my God, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this food plan. And so that was a really powerful moment for me. Do you know what I mean? It, mm -hmm, it, it, mm -hmm. This is the work that I do, but I haven't had anything be so profoundly identified, do you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and like I said, it was an unusual situation. I would never have done that on a first session, uh, usually. Yeah. No, I can't think of one I would have. And But this one has someone who knows what countertransfers and transfers is. And so it, I just decided to go with my gut instinct and just, just explore. I got curious about it, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's how our own bodies can help inform this process. Yeah. And that's the other reason why I, you've, you've heard me say this in training, that any health professional, if they have unresolved issues around their body or eating, uh, you're going to, at, at worst, interfere with the process, but at, wait, at best, interfere with the process, and at worst, you can actually do some harm. So it's important to work your stuff out. And, you know, therapists are really lucky, in my opinion, or maybe not lucky, but they're fortunate, because in their scope of practice and in their training, they're expected to get supervision and to work on their issues if they get triggered. But dietitians really aren't. We're not, that's not given to us in our, in our training. And I just... I just saw a study that came by my desk. Oh, that looking at the incidence of orthorexia in dietetica students, and it was really, really high. Now, granted, there isn't one assessment tool for orthorexia. I just went to a meeting on it, and the whole thing is being, they're, they're trying to find something that's really valid because they've been finding all these different instruments that come up with high numbers like 70%, 80%, 90%. I remember thinking, sitting through that, that uh, um, symposium, thinking, you know, that sounds about right. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Population right now, mm -hmm, it might mm -hmm. not be a flaw in the tool. It might actually be picking up on, on the reality. So all the more that we'd have a place and a system for our students and our, our professionals to go to, you know? Yeah, definitely. Because, because unless we are able to notice, you know, um, the way we're showing up and also our own biases that, yeah. we, that we've been handed either by family of origin, culture, training, most notably all of the above, right? And including, yeah. and including all of our own experiences living in a body. <sighs> yeah. You know, that the, there are so many, there are so many um, ways in which we can seek to understand ourselves as humans, as dietitians, and yet there is kind of a limited, um, there's a limited messaging about what a dietitian should look like, should say, should mm. do. And so that's what's so beautiful about intuitive eating and, um, you know, health at every size, which is the overarching paradigm, is because it allows us to explore and be with our own experiences as well, you know, oh, to see ourselves as, as, as human in amongst this. And that what I'm noticing, and I know you and I are both very, very passionate about this, is there's been an uptick in people seeking supervision and saying, wow. Yeah you know, maybe, maybe I could get more from this. Like maybe I could do better, be better. Um, and I don't mean that in a perfectionistic way. Oh, no, it's an evolutionary way. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That we want to, um, that we want to be um, better able to serve the people who seek our support. And Absolutely. So it's so awesome to see that people are really interested 
in understanding more about themselves. Yeah, you know, and I think uh, when I look at the, what are the factors in behind that, I think one, you know, with IADEP requiring supervision for dietitians to become, you know, a certified specialist, I, I think that's helped to really validate that. But I also think with the coaching phenomenon, for those go, going down that career track, it's known that a coach gets a coach kind of thing. And so I think people are more, more open just, just to learning. Or actually, I've, I've worked with some people where they were so, what's the word, panicked. <laughs> it's like yeah. they were humbled yep. in submission. I better get, you know, another opinion here. Because it's one thing when you get educated by a professor at a university who hasn't had any practical experience with working with patients, a complete different experience than, than, than educating in terms of lecturing and, and all those kinds of things on a, on a didactic level, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So one thing I wanted to ask you, which, which I notice is a really common phenomenon, especially amongst um, dietitians who are newer to intuitive eating and non-diet approach approaches, and that is this sense of, um, of taking, uh, I guess, a toe dip or taking a step forward. And as you and I both know, once you see, you can't unsee. No, you can't. You can't. You can't yeah, you can't go back. So there's this phenomenon that I'm noticing where I'm not sure how to go for. I know I can't go back. Yeah. And now I'm not sure how to go forward. So if I was to present that to you as you know, goodness, I'm I'm not sure kind of where to, not even know where to start, but how to really deepen my own understanding about. Um, about this doing this kind of work you know I know I can't go back right. even even though I can totally totally understand it would be really tempting really tempting but I don't know anybody who's kind of gone back once you once you kind of op open that door either. no it's like the matrix you know taking that little pill once your totally. eyes are open you know once you're woke and actually it's the same thing is true for our patients I have patients oh, so true that get really mad um happy mad because they're so clear they will never go back to dieting, but they're still not in a place where they really have accepted their bodies. They will tell me they loathe their bodies. They're at a place where they have intellectual buy-in. And I think that's what you're describing with some of these dietitians, where they have the intellectual buy-in in the Hayes non-dieting intuitive eating process, but they don't have the skill set yet. But they also know they can't go back. And so the, the, way, the way forward is through, is through training and mm -hmm. learning. You know, that's, that's the way forward. And some of it's a lot of unlearning as well. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I think, sometimes I think that's maybe the first step is it's like once you've taken a few steps forward and you're like, uh-oh, can't go back, then concentrating on the unlearning and kind of, I don't know, what would you say, clean your house and then yeah. <laughs> rearrange the you know, furniture a little bit? There's a, an artist I love to follow on Instagram. It's, oh my gosh, it's either Charlie or Charles McKay. I want to say Charlie. Do you know who I'm talking about? He write, he draws with a black pen and, um, and paper, and it's a horse and a mole and who else? There's three characters. But he has these most pithy sayings. And one time the horse was asking the mole, like, is there a school to go to for unlearning? You know? And I thought that was brilliant. And then looking at the comments on there, someone said, yeah, it's called therapy. <laughs> oh, I love it. Love it. How perfect. So, yeah. Yeah. So there is. There is a – there is a – and that's probably a really important message to send to people is it is possible. It's like the, um, how does that, how does that kids rhyme go where you, um, going on a bear hunt, you know, that one where you go, can't go around it. You've got to go through it. 
Uh-huh. You know the one I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I and do. Swishy, 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 glug, glug, glug. You know, anyway, it's probably not, it's not been that long ago since I did going on a bear hunt with my kids. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, but it feels a bit like that. I'm like, can't go around it. Like, you, you can find all kinds of, you can attempt in so many ways to circumvent what you and I might describe as the work. Yeah. But actually, kind of the mess is in going through the swishy, swishy grass and the deep, deep mud and the dark, dark forest or whichever well, and iteration you know what, to, add, to add to complications with it, I mean, one is the whole actual practice of the work. And I think what makes this really difficult is we're in a time of a great paradigm blindness in terms of the weight at any cost health model. Mm -hmm. And are you familiar with the Simmelweis reflex? I'm actually starting to teach that now. I feel so strongly Ooh, about it. I saw you post about that on Instagram. So yeah, 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 I love that. So tell us a bit more about that. Oh, let me tell. I mean, no, mm -hmm. I'm honestly including it in my training. So Simmelweis reflex is named after a doctor a doctor who long ago discovered and did an experiment and discovered that if physicians did not wash their hands, they kill their patients. And in this case, it was in mothers who were giving birth to, to children. And he was scoffed at. They, and they, the, the response was, well, that's absurd. We're gentlemen. We would never kill anybody, <laughs> you know? Mm -hmm. And it was awful. I didn't, I didn't write this part in the post, but he was so scoffed at and teased about his ideas, he, went, he, he committed suicide. And it was after his death that Louis Pasteur came out with identifying the germ theory, germ, these invisible things actually cause disease and can kill you. He was exonerated. But now it, this name, the Simmelweis reflux, describes the phenomenon when there's paradigm blindness, when new research comes aboard and it does not match with the popular view. This is true. This also happened with heart disease too, by the way, with inflammation theory. Um, it's, I won't even go into that one. But I think on some level, it's heartening to know, oh my gosh, this is happened in history where everyone quote knows you know and then so, then research comes along and, and completely disproves it i think that's what we're witnessing right now is a modern simulvis reflex with all of this so one thing I think is really comforting to know that this has taken place in history over and over and over again, where the dominant paradigm was actually wrong. And I, I think what's so frustrating right now is the body of research is so strong, showing that dieting is not sustainable, dieting causes more, more problems, weight stigma, eating disorder risk, blah, 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 blah. And I shouldn't say blah, blah, because we have serious people out there listening sure. to this. Yeah. Um, but very significant issues. And, and yet... And yet people refuse to look at that. I don't, I don't understand that. And looking at all the confounders that were going on. And when you look at the whole correlation and association of, of so-called weight and health, there's so many confounders. My favorite example on this is, is the ice cream one, you know, and that is in the summertime, people eat more ice cream because it's hot. In the summertime, people swim more because it's fun. Now, there are more drownings with people who eat ice cream. <laughs> you know? That's an association. It's not a cause. Eating ice cream doesn't cause drownings. It's an association. It sounds preposterous, but that's what's happening in our field right now to the point of almost relig re religiosity, you know, including, okay, can, I, can we just talk about the fast track trial going on in Australia? I mean, that's, Oh, okay. Uh, let's go there. Can we? Yeah, I gotta tell you, it just pissed me off. I was, you know, Louise sent me the abstract, and we don't. You, you can explain whatever you want to explain uh, on, because on, I don't know. I don't know how much you've talked about this before on your on your calls, but 
at all, have you? Mm -mm. Nope. Oh, really? No. Do you want to, do you want to explain? You want to go into the details? It's your country. <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, 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 I guess a brief background and for, for anybody that is um, curious to hear or see more about it, um, probably the best website you can go to is Hayes Australia. Um, um, the, the website just to see all kind of the background detail, but Louise Adams, who is um, from Untrapped, um, uh, we, we discovered um, by we, I mean a group of us eating disorder um, clinicians uh, just happened to, literally happened to trip over um, this uh, study called the Fast Track Trial, um, which is being held out of Sydney and Melbourne. And essentially the, um, the, the, the trial is taking um, 13 to 17 year olds, so adolescents, and, um, and engaging in um, very low energy diets, so very low energy being between 600 and 800 um, calories a day. So that is a third to a quarter of any adolescent's uh, required intake. So very, very, very low, lower than we would ever recommend for anybody except for extreme medical circumstances. Um, and then followed by what we would call um, intermittent day fasting. So um, very, very low energy one day and then um, a, a, low, a lower energy on the other day. So there's no day really where they're meeting their energy requirements. And the idea is to see what happens in um, adolescents that are regarded as well above a weight, where, which is um, objectively where the, these researchers have decided that they quote unquote should be. Um, so this has, uh, with a bit of background there, uh, there's a group of um, a lar large and growing number of people who are starting to become very noisy about this particular trial. And in particular, the, um, I guess, the lack of ethics behind it and um, the lack of risk management around it, particularly when it comes to risk of, um, of eating disorders and doing, you know, uh, making sure that there's not only um, proper screening and tracking of these young people, but ultimately that we are calling for the trial to be stopped altogether. So we're not, we're not asking for things to be quote unquote managed during it. We're not interested in that. What we are interested in is the safety of, of young people when there is a clear lack of evidence in safety in adults. So if, if something has not been shown to be safe and effective at all in adults and why would we do that in adolescents and there's a complete kind of lack yeah there's not only lack of yeah lack of evidence but also um, uh, there's been no regard for for risk at all so not even any little regard but no regard um, well so it's yeah, I feel like this has been consuming our lives for for a while here and so I'm so we're so grateful to have international support um, because it's been tough. It has really, really, really been very, very tough. It's just so, so mind boggling. And, and, and if I can just add to what you said, and then I'm going to add some more, you know, when you look at the classic Ansel Keys study, the Minnesota starvation study, you know, where we had these horrible effects with these men, they had twice the amount of calories as these teenagers. And, you know, they developed eating disorders and all kinds of problems. And so Louise sent me the, because uh, I did some writing up on this stuff too, and she sent me the, the abstract that justifies the um, attention to detail. And when I read it, I just about died because all they did was quote a meta-analysis on studies on teens in which the follow-up was only six months to one year. Mm -hmm. You're not going to capture any side effects or malfeasance in that. We, we see that more at the five-year mark as far as efficacy. And it's just, it's just, I, I think, 
there's such paradigm blindness, and frankly, I think some arrogance involved in this too, to have no regard for the for the kids who got to go to school. So, anyways, this is a, just a really good example of the Simmelweis reflex in action that these scientists can't even see the harm because they're so wedded to the what they perceive is going to be a good outcome, even though there's no data to support it. It's just preposterous. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and as humans, particularly um, highly educated people, and particularly if we exist in a multi-privileged body where yeah. we're not necessarily um, highly criticized or called to account, I think that um, you know it can be very confronting when we are when we are called to account and where there's a possibility that actually we could be wrong, um, and that can feel very jarring. So although yeah. I have um, compassion for people who have been, I guess, um, involved in 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 harmful. Um, uh, perpetuating harm, I also prioritize the invitation to do better and understand more and to take a look at what's been going on. So, and I think that's possible that we can, we can hold compassion um, for their very human experience as well as leaning in and leveraging our own privilege and the, and the gifts that have been, um, that have been given to us by other leaders in the world and particularly those in marginalized bodies who have been so generous, as you said, people like Deb Begar, Lisa Debriel, such incredible oh, yeah. people who are incredibly generous, you know, with their with their wisdom and their support and helping us do better, that we can then, um, you know, hold that space for others. And like you say, that reflex, I think, is rooted probably mostly in the idea that we don't like to feel like we're, we've done wrong. We don't, you know, that, that we feel so maybe hurt or ashamed about that possibility that we the the def either we either we um, defend or we deflect or we discredit or um, have a number of other things which probably start with D as well um, <laughs> and ways to to, to 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 keep ourselves feeling like we're good humans. Yeah, and I, I would say that maybe the one silver lining is just watching the industry communities from around the world rallying and all the allied health professionals. That, that's been the one silver lining at all of this. I had never even uh, met Louise. I, I had heard of Untrapped, but I didn't even know who the name behind that was. So, you know, now I have like all this high respect for all this work you know, she's been doing. And, you know, especially now when you've had so many organizations come out with statements, um, there's, there's no excuse, especially with, with kids being involved. So, yeah. yeah. So I have to ask you a question on a lighter note, if I may. <laughs> yeah, go. <laughs> yes. you know, I, I, I love lightness. Go for it. Okay, so I've been listening to Fiona uh, Willer's podcast on uh, unpacking weight science, and I love it, love it, love it. But I noticed she uses the word we a lot for about urine. Is that an Australian thing? If you have oh, to wee. wee. Oh, yeah. W-E-E? -E? I don't know. That's why I'm asking you. Educate yes. me. I've never heard it's of this. urine. <laughs> yeah, urine, urine. P I laugh every time she says this. We. we got this academic talking about we. <laughs> yeah, I think, well, I think she, because she's got little children. So I think yeah. she's probably used to saying we. <laughs> Well, in the United States, it's funny. We say pee for what, in case you want to know. You got to pee. And, and by the way, that used to be thought as crass. But when I started doing rounds with the residents and the interns at the teaching mm -hmm. hospital, they would say pee instead of urinate. But I just thought, I got to get it straight. I'm going to ask an Australian. So there, are so, there are so many Aussie-isms, I can't tell yeah. you. So whenever I visit the States and I'm speaking either one-on-one -on -one to somebody or speaking with a group or even a very large group, what I can, t I can, I can pick up on the Aussie 
isms, it's not in my body, it's using my eyes because all of a sudden this particular look this goes across people's faces. It's either like a quizzical look or, or blank. It's like, <laughs> I, I have got no idea. And, and it turns into always this very hilarious moment because I, if that happens, I immediately stop and I say, okay, pause, rewind. Which word or phrase did I say that is eliciting this particular reaction and it's never what I expect it's never what I expect you know um, I can't even think about examples but there's tons of them there's lots of them that are particularly um, Aussie isms and honestly I can't tell what they are <laughs> Because <laughs> anyway, I've grown up I, with it. I can't hear you how often I was laughing when I hear her talking about this. Oh know? my God. All this deep stuff and research and then we. <laughs> and then we. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Oh, Evelyn, look, you know what? You and I could talk forever and luckily so. we will have a chance to connect yeah. when I visit the States very shortly. So that will be awesome to I'm hang out. I'm looking forward to that. I really, really am. Oh yeah. It'll be so fun just to yeah. keep chatting about all kinds of stuff we wonder how to connect great um so evelyn as always it is such a pleasure to you know just just be in the presence of your wisdom and um you, you are just so generous with oh, you. Um, you know sharing your your knowledge and experience and also so honestly reflecting on on how your work has changed over years and what has really supported you to, you know, shift over the years. I think there's a lot we can really learn from, uh, from the way that you have um, shared that so, so widely oh, and generously. Thank you. thank you so much. And it, it really does take a village, you know, it takes it all of us working together. We're more powerful together, right? Absolutely. hundred percent. So, um, as I said, just a loop us back right to the start, you know, I, I, at every opportunity, I always shout your training from the rooftop. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, about your, uh, your online intuitive eating training and where people can find more, more information. Okay. Well, do you want to know all the steps or just the generalities? Just the generalities. Cause then people can okay. go straight to your website. Yeah. So basically, we train and certify health professionals in the intuitive eating process. There's four key steps that I won't go into the details of, the, of, of that, but it's really ultimately tra uh, training you in, in the nuances on how do you help cultivate someone becoming an intuitive eater. It's not enough just to read and ha have an understanding of that. So uh, it, it's a process I very much enjoy. I think I mentioned we have over 800 people now in 22 countries. So oh the God. word is spreading. It's, it's exciting awesome. to see that. So the way they can figure that out is they can either go on my website or on the intuitive eating website, or if you're following me on Instagram, you can click on Lincoln bio. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there. I, I do in terms of the live teleseminar trainings, I do about five or six a year of those. Mm -hmm. The next one coming out will be, um, in April. And I'll tell you, I, the blast I really get is when I do the, we, we require supervision in this too, and it's allied health professionals. So the way a, a psychologist versus a physician versus a dietitian versus a nephrophysiologist, the way they would use the intuitive eating principles within their scope of practice is, is really a fun thing to watch the synergy and the minds clicking, you know? Absolutely. And there's so much that we can learn from each other in our different professions as well so how oh, absolutely it's mm. yeah it, it's very it's very collegial so it's mm -hmm. it's it's exciting to see this grow and we're, we when we first started doing this the idea was like you know what wouldn't it be great if anybody we referred to they're going to get the same message yes. it's not going to be undone yes. by the trainer or the doctor and that yes. was a kind of our our vision and so 
you know, we're still, you know, working on, on improving everything we do. It's a process. So, yeah. Yeah, sure. Sure. Absolutely. And I, I can imagine that for you that the, you know, the, the, looking how you can expand and, and deepen and broaden is probably part of what makes it so rewarding. Yeah. You know what? It, it really is. I never get tired of this. In fact, someday what I really want to be doing is doing direct experience, like, like a weekend retreat of immersion. Do you know what I mean? Where you go through the process of it for yourself. And so that's in the back of my mind in terms of next steps, not, not required for certification, but just in terms of really meeting with people and going through the process, you know, oh, what yeah. does it feel like, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, the time is right. Now people are really looking to immerse themselves much more deeply in a, I in a, guess, so. a, a time effective way as well. I think that's what I was thinking about with mm. the, with the weekend. It, it, it's, it's more cost effective. It's more time effective, but you know, and I know you're a meditator with your SMBR training and there's a similar thing here. You just can't talk about intuitive eating. You need to have the practice and the experience of it. And so yeah, what better way than going through a whole weekend where all meals are, you know, provided and mm -hmm. you do experience and learning at the same time, you know, Ugh. maybe having fun along the way. Gotta have some fun. You know? Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Okay, right. Sold. Sign me up. That's your first place taken. Oh my gosh. Well, well, we'll talk afterwards, but I have some ideas. So, yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Now, this is newsflash. Evelyn Triboli has some ideas. Really? You're joking. <laughs> You know, I used to be afraid of running out ideas. I had scarcity mentality. I used to carry around a little a list with ideas. Oh, my God. Oh and my for God. articles. And then finally I realized, you know what? Let that go. It, you haven't run out of ideas yet. Mm -mm. <laughs> mm -mm. I don't you, think it's going to happen or, you know. You are an ideas human. That's for sure. <laughs> I get synergized by being around other people. Too. I know. So great. Oh, Evelyn, as always, just such a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you so, Likewise. so much. This was an amazing conversation. I'm just so grateful to have you in the world. Likewise. It's so mutual. So mm -hmm. mutual. Thank you so much. Thanks. Well, that's our episode of the Mindful Dietitian interview series for today. Thank you so much to our wonderful guest and to you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed it. Just a reminder that you can find me over on the website www.themindfuldietitian.com.au and please join actually quite a large group of wonderful and enthusiastic dietitians on the closed Facebook group, The Mindful Dietitian. The music you hear is called Happiness from Ben Sound, used under the Creative Commons license. Have a great day, everyone.